welcome to RUF. Um, it makes me really happy to see this room so full and warm. Um, I, Simon normally starts out his talk by talking about what RUF is. We've already heard it's for the, the tired, the skeptical, and the committed. Um, I just want to add that if you either have been coming to RUF for a while or if you don't know what you think about uh, Christianity or about the spiritual things of life or about anything that has to do with walking in the faith, RUF is definitely the place for you. Um, and that's because primarily we believe that the first step in walking with Christ is accepting that we don't have it all together. So this is the place, that's why we can come into a place like this free of judgment for one another and for ourselves because we believe that it's about accepting the fact that we don't have it all together. Um, and so I would encourage you with that. If you have questions, you can always talk to me or Anna or Simon. Um, so with that being said, our text is from John 13. So I'm going to read that, if I can navigate my iPad properly. There we go. And then uh, I'll pray and we'll jump in. Uh, So this is the word of the Lord, John 13. Follow along with me. It's 20 verses, but they're important. Um, So it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not now realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet and my hands, but my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When, they had finished, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that, you have seen these, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I thank you for this group. I thank you for the opportunity to bring the word today. Lord, um, I just ask that um, I would decrease your increase, your increase. Let me pray. Amen. All right. So if you need a quick refresher about what we've been doing this semester, we've been going through the Gospel of John. Um, right. So obviously there being four Gospels, each Gospel offers a really cool pers- individual perspective to that Gospel on the person of Jesus. Because the person of Jesus is such an appealing and infinite thing to think about that we needed four Gospels instead of one to be able to see all the different perspectives of, to get a full picture of Jesus. Um, and so John's perspective he's writing from is one of Jesus' closest friends. And so a lot of John's Gospel, as we've been learning this semester, is 
finding out how to grow closer to Jesus as a friend and as a savior. Um, and so we see that here a lot. I want to break, get into that in a second. But first, it's just an introduction. The first 13 chapters of the Gospel of John, actually the first 12, are about the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And then the next seven, including chapter 13, are about the last 24 hours before he's put to death on the cross. So this is taking place the night before the Last Supper. Um, and as far as introductions go, verse 1 is connecting those two portions of Jesus' ministry. So if we look at that together, verse 1, it was before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the banner connecting his ministry is the fact that he has loved us since the beginning and will love us to the end. Um, and that's a beautiful summary of what Jesus' ministry is, is actually about. right? Um, so I just want to give you all my two points here on the front end. Basically, I think there are two levels to this passage. There's a level one that we get when we read through it the first time, and then there's a second level that goes a little bit deeper that actually helps us understand the first level better. Um, so the first level is Jesus in this passage is giving us an acted out example um, of what a representative of Christ begins to look like under his influence. Um, so when I was in third grade, uh, there was a movie that came out called Shark, Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Anyone know this movie? I was worried y'all weren't going to know it. It makes me feel generationally like there's not a gap. That's good. So this movie... You don't need to know the plot, but basically there's a kid and he's going between the real world that he's he's dealing with bullying and other things, and he's going between that world and his imaginary world where he's created two uh, superheroes, Sharkboy and Lava Girl, um, and he hangs out with them and they do cool stuff together. I, in third grade, at eight years old, really wanted to be Sharkboy. There's a cool part in this movie where he, like, or it was cool to me back then, where he grabs this, like, piece of trash and then, like, a classroom, and he throws it across the classroom, and it goes in this little wastebasket, like, he squishes it, and I was like, that's my new personality. So, for, like, a week, I was throwing stuff around at, like, every class, classroom I was in in, like, third grade, and then one time I was in the cafeteria during lunch. This was, like, this cafeteria had, like, 400 people in it, eighth grade through third grade, um, and I had like a half-eaten sandwich, and I put it in this Ziploc bag and turned, and there's this like, 20 feet away, there's like this industrial-sized trash can against the wall. And I was like, my time has come. So I turn, and I throw it, and I yell, it's morphin' time, which I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but that's what I said. And so, true story. And I, and I threw it, and it hit off the wall, and it went in, and I was like, nailed it. And then I turned, and the fire alarm started going off. And I turned back, and I had hit the like, pull-down fire alarm on the wall and the only problem with the fire alarm was it worked perfectly except no one knew how to turn it off so for like 45 minutes we're sitting there with like sirens going of course because they only travel in packs of nine there are like nine like like what do you call fire trucks out there in the front um a very harrowing day for me so i tell that story for two reasons honestly just because i think it's a funny story is one reason I told it. But also, um, secondly, I do think that it illustrates something that's true for us as kids, but also true for us as we've grown into adulthood, if you're in college or out of college, is this idea that you are affected by the people that you look up to around you. That Those people do have an influence on you um, in the way that you want to live your life. And so I wasn't in that moment trying to be like Isaac with a sprinkle of shark boy. Like I wanted to embody that guy. Um, And Jesus is saying here in this passage, um, this is what my followers will naturally begin to look like 
if they're under my influence. This is how they will naturally begin to embody me under my influence because I'm a meek and gentle servant. Um, so once again, level one is Jesus is giving us an acted out representation of what we will naturally begin to look like under his ministry if we know him. So let's actually start with the end here, verse 20, which says, very truly, which we all know, right? Very truly or truly, truly means mark this down, underline this. I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Um, So this is clearly not just any representative Jesus is talking about, right? This is a representative that's so intimately connected with Jesus that when people receive that representative, they're receiving Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, in 24 hours, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be descending into hell. I'll rise rise again from the dead, although none of the disciples understood that at the time. He's saying, when I'm gone, you will be my representatives to the world. And on such an intimate level that you will carry me with you. And I think the question is maybe, what, who is fit to be that sort of representative? Because I understand on one, on one level if it's just, oh, you're going to teach people about me, you're going to you know, represent me by talking about the word of God or the good news. That's one thing. But to be intimately connected to Jesus on that level, the question of who's fit to be that representative, I feel like for me I could say, not me, is my initial reaction. But especially, too, not the disciples standing before him, right? Not only are these guys sinners, but they're also, they have a lot of sinning left to do in their lives. Like, they're about to all scatter in less than 24 hours when Jesus is arrested. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. Thomas is going to doubt, right? The list goes on and on. These are illiterate, smelly fishermen standing in the room with Jesus. And he's saying, you're going to be my representatives. Um, and if the question is, what is the mark then of representing Christ? And I think that's actually why we get the answer, how we get the answer on why these disciples are actually fit to be Christ's representatives. It's because what it takes to be a representative of Christ is to be a humble servant. It's to live a life of humility. Um, And I think that's a scary thing to say. Um, But in verse 12, Jesus essentially spells this out for us when he says, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Um, so, essentially, this is not saying that we as Christians are not called to high things. Right? And if you wanted a proof of that, Jesus is called to the highest thing ever. He's called to save the world. And what does he do? He's, already, he's known this his whole life. But he re-acknowledges it to himself in a really interesting way in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He's in a moment of acknowledging this and the first thing he does after acknowledging his highest of calls to save the world, he gets up, strips down to the clothing of a servant and begins to wash his disciples' feet. That's how he starts the last 24 hours of his life. Um, And that's, I think, really significant. Because the the truth is, as Christians, we're also called to high things. But that honestly can look like meeting those high things in humility. Um, So in verses 3 through 5, it's it's apparent Jesus is the one that should be served here. But he's the one getting up and washing his disciples' feet. Um, And we get his explanation on verses 12 through 17 on why he's doing this. And I think this explanation says something for us and says something about our Savior. Um, And then after that, we'll get to the second level. So 
for us, it says, obviously, as we've been saying, right, it's, it's calling us into a place of deep humility. Uh, and maybe that looks like talking to the person in class that no one wants to be associated with, that says weird things and sits alone. Maybe it looks like repenting of gossip of someone maybe even around the battle house who seems that they have it all together, that seems like the perfect Christian, right, that you can be tempted to gossip about sometimes. Maybe it even looks like in a real life of humility bringing that to the person and being like, hey, I said some really hurtful things about you. I'm really sorry. I wanted you to know that. Um, Maybe it looks like suppressing the fear that starts to crop up in all of us when someone who's more qualified um, or has a better resume is telling us about their accomplishments, which might also be coming out of their own insecurity, to look at that person and genuinely love them and genuinely be excited for them. Um, But this also says something about Jesus because he does this gladly. He actually says something about what it means to be glad in this passage too. In verse 17, he says... Blessed are you if you do these things. Blessed in the Greek meaning glad, meaning happy, meaning satisfied. And what's so mind-blowing is he's saying something very different from what the world is teaching us. Right? The world would say to be satisfied is to be served. But Jesus is saying if you really want to know me, if you really want to grow close to me, emulating me looks like serving others and being humble. Um, and even more so, Jesus is serving us gladly in that moment. So if I'm, if I'm having a moment of honesty here, sometimes in my life, the white noise, the underlying thing, the undercurrent in my life can sometimes be that God doesn't really like me or that he's aloofly disappointed with me or that he's just in some way displeased with me because he knows me as well as I know me and I know that I'm a sinner. Um, and what's so beautiful here is this is not the sort of Savior we're encounter- encountering in this passage, right? This is the sort of Savior who gladly moves to us, first of all, from being God, becoming fully man and fully God on earth, and then becoming, dressing like a servant, right? Taking out his outer garments. One, one commentator I read said this is essentially like wearing your underwear, like in this room and wiping our feet down with a towel. That's a beautiful Savior, um, and not the Savior that I sometimes find myself when I'm not thinking hard about it, popping up in the back of my mind. Um, and I want to ask here at the end of sort of our, our first point, right, if we're called to service, if we're called to humility, the question might be, how does that sit with you? Because if you're like me, anytime I come out of a sermon or out of like a time with the Lord feeling a primary emotion of like obligation, that usually doesn't go so well for me. So if you're intimidated by this call, me too. And I think to, to, anytime I, I follow that obligation, I last about two weeks or three weeks, and I do really great, and then I burn out, and I end up being more apathetic than I was before. And that's why level two is so important and so needed. Um, because the second deeper level that helps us to serve in humility to one another is the one thing we haven't talked about, the one thing we sort of missed, which is Peter's reaction to Jesus. Um, so essentially, I'll sum up verses 6 through 11 in the, in the interest of time. Jesus comes to Peter to wash his feet, and Peter says, No way, right? Not in a million years, Jesus, are you washing my feet? Um, he says, You will never wash my feet. And if, if, if level one was the only point, I think here, Jesus, if, if the only point was for Jesus to set an example, right, for his disciples, Jesus would say, Okay, Peter, I understand what you're trying to do, but can you shut your mouth and sit down? I'm making a point, okay? I'm washing your feet so you can know this is what you're supposed to be doing too, etc., etc. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says something far more earth-shattering than that in verse 8. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. 
And if you're Peter, you're thinking, well, hold on, Jesus. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I dropped everything I had to follow you three years ago, right? I left my job behind. I left my family behind. Um, I've been living off of charity with you, going from town to town for three years. And if you don't wash my feet, then I have no place with you. So understandably, what does Peter then then do because of that? He says, well, then my hands and my head as well. Wash everything about me. And Jesus' response to that is also just as earth-shattering. I want to look at verse 10. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Um, so here we know that Jesus is talking about Judas, right? He's saying when he says, not all, not all of you are clean. He's saying in this room with Jesus... There are 11 children of God and one child of the world. Um, So maybe the question to ask then is, well, what separates Peter from Judas? Why is Peter completely clean, as Jesus just said, and Judas not? And it boils down to justification. Um, And for that, I want to look at, you can pull this up if you want on your phone. It's Zechariah 3, or you can listen. It's just like five verses. Um, It's pretty, let me pull it up. Alright, Zechariah 3. This is when Joshua the high priest has passed away, right? He led Israel for a while. He's passed away and now he's standing before the throne for judgment. If you've never heard this passage before, it's really beautiful. I encourage you to listen. Then he showed me, he being um, God to Zechariah, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was standing in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So essentially what's happening in that passage, it's super powerful, is Joshua is getting the robes of Christ put on him, right? He still wears his sin. His sin still still exists. But as he stands before the throne, because of Christ's righteousness, he gets that on his own behalf. And that's the difference between him and Judas, is he's put his trust in Christ, even though he still sins, and Judas never did. So if you're wondering then, why does Jesus say that I must wash your feet or else you have no part with me? If he's already clean, right? If we're already clean, if we've put our trust in Christ, what are we supposed to get out of the fact that Jesus says, I must wash your feet in verse 8? Well, this is what Peter failed to realize. Um, even those Christians, right, if we have faith and trust in the fact that if we've put our trust in Jesus, we are spotless before the throne. We still sin. And if you're like me, occasionally when you read these passages in Scripture that are about like, oh, we've been, you know, we've been born again, right? We're no longer children of the world or of the flesh. I read those with a little bit of a tremor in my heart because I say, well, yes, I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian. Like, I'm like very sure that I want to follow Jesus, but I also still sin a lot. And this sounds like there's a weird tension between sinning and being a Christian, and that's what Jesus is trying to address because he's saying wash, having your feet washed by Jesus is kind to him with confession, right, with repentance and prayer on the daily because we still sin as Christians a lot. And we need someone to deal with that sin because the truth about sin is 
it does mar your heart. It does scar you, right? Sin is something that even though our ultimate salvation is secure, sin can harm us in deep ways. And so Jesus is saying, you have to come to me to be clean. So I can clean that daily sort of sin from your heart, even though you're already saved and secure in Christ. So we go low in humble service because we're already clean. And because at the same time, we still are in need of a daily cleansing. Um, that's the Christian life. And I actually want to close by telling a story that I think illustrates this pretty well. Um, this, when I, another story from when I was young, probably about seven years old. Um, when I was little, my parents, my dad, usually would punish me with just sending me a timeout or taking something away from me. Occasionally, he would spank me, and he would use like a, a wooden spoon. It was never anything egregious, but it was part of my upbringing as a kid. And there was a time when I was playing with my sister, Lucy. She was five, I was seven. And I like remember having this train in my hand. She reached for it. And so I pushed her away and she fell down and hit her head. And my dad comes downstairs because she's crying. I just walked out of the room. I was so mad. And I walk into the kitchen and lo and behold, sitting on this counter is that wooden spoon. And so I walk over and I pick it up and I just walked into the bathroom and closed the door and just sat down on the ground. I just remember looking at the spoon and being so mad. Uh, And without thinking about it, I just like, hit it over my knee and managed to break it, which I didn't think I would be able to do at six years old. Um, But as soon as that happened, I looked at that, and it might sound silly now, but truly my thought was, well, I've really done it now. Like, I'm I'm really in a bad spot now. Now I've really messed up. And so I got up and I locked the door. Um, to the bathroom, I just sat on the ground and I cried for like six or seven minutes. Um, and my dad was knocking the door trying to come in um, and I wouldn't let him in. And finally, after I had finished crying, I got up and I unlocked the door and I opened it. And I remember being so distraught and sad that I didn't even say any words to him. I just held this broken spoon out to him and looked at him. And my dad saw me in that moment and he didn't see any of this, the shame I perceived about myself. He didn't see any of the sin or the guilt. He looked at me and saw his son. And, um, man, my face was red. Tears streaming down my face. He got on one knee and he looked at me and said, I love you. He said, I, you're my son. Um, and he hugged me and patted me on the back. Um, and I cried for a little more. And what's so interesting to me about that story is I was locked away with my shame and my guilt. And in that moment, the last thing I wanted to do was to unlock the door. But if I had known the sort of love that was waiting for me on the other side of that door, I would never have despaired. I would never have cried. I would have thrown down the thing that I held up as sin and I would have ran to the door and I would have opened it and I would have embraced my father. Um... I think that says something about justification, that our Father looks at us like that and doesn't see anything but His son or daughter in Christ. Um, And that's why we should go low. Because Jesus did. Because it's the most joyful thing we can do even when it looks like suffering. And because we are completely clean in Christ. Um, I was originally wanting to sing the Church's One Foundation today after this. Forgot to send it to Eli, so that's on me. But there's in the final verse, it talks about the saints, which we understand to mean, based on the writers, this just means anyone who has passed on, who is a Christian who has died and now is alive with Christ in heaven, 
That's what it means when it calls them the saints. Speaking of the saints, in this last verse, it says, O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Maybe I'm a hopeless romantic or an idealist, but to me, I I hate the expression, too good to be true. Um, Because every longing or desire I've ever had keeps seeming to point me to this moment when I will look at something and say, that is so good, it must be true. And to me, thinking about standing before the throne someday and getting to take off my dirty clothes and have the fires, the, the Father's smile upon me, that is so good, it must be true. Um, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, thank you that you call us to hard things, that you call us to service, but that you don't leave us with just an, oblig- an obligatory call, Lord, but that you put upon us your love, Lord, and your smiles, um, and that as Zephaniah 3 says, you exalt over us with loud singing, Lord. You sing at the sight of us. That's what enables us to do service, Lord. So I ask that we would do that boldly. Mary, pray. Amen.